Now, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31 is our, is, is our main passage, but we're going to be looking at different verses. It has been a, a very, these last uh, three weeks, well, these three weeks, we have, it's been very topical. Normally, we go through a book of the Bible, and to that we will return next week, uh, the book of John, and we're going to try and finish it, finish it by Easter. But I, I felt that as we start this year, that it is important for us to, to get a hold on, on what is happening. So the first week in our mini-series, we looked at modern history that told us that over a 200-year period, there was considerable advance in science and technology. That's the good news. The bad news is that there was, because of rationalism and, and a deep dependency on reason, that there was a growing scepticism of religion and particularly the Christian faith. So there was a questioning of the scriptures and, and faith. Now in the last 30 years, we've seen the arrival of postmodernism and not only postmodernism, but it's also post-secularism. So it's a move away from reason and rationalism and uh, which has taken a back seat, and we are seeing a resurgence, a resurgence of pagan spirituality. So people no longer consider themselves religious, but they talk about being spiritual. This is best illustrated as the clash between the oneist and the twoist worldviews. For the oneist, this world is all there is, and all is part of the circle. We're all part of it. God, people, nature, trees, animals, it's all part of the one circle. So God is part of it. But nothing special, really, in that view. For the tourists, like us, God created the world, but he's separate from the world. But he continues to uphold it. He's relate. he's the, the incarnation is the ultimate way that he continues to care and is related to the world. But he is separate. He is above us. He is beyond us. Now last week we spoke about the utopian dream. So all of this stuff is connected one behind the other. So for those of you who are just listening today, you might be a little bit lost. So you need to sort of join the dots a bit. But last week we, we, we looked at the utopian dream. This is the ancient ideal of bringing all the nations, all the religions and, and governments under one rule in order to make a name for ourselves, to achieve greatness. And this, of course, has been attempted so many times. started with the Tower of Babel and all the other different kingdoms that have sought to achieve it. Maybe for us it, today it sounds a little bit far-fetched. But just ponder on the, the gradual erosion of the freedoms that we once had. The erosion of your privacy. The pulling down of the great institution of marriage and family. And the acceptance of pagan ideas and lifestyles as just being another alternative that we should accept. 
The challenge for the globalist utopians is how they're going to pull it off. So many countries, so many different cultures, so many economic levels, different education levels. What vehicle, what medium will they use to commit all the nations to own these ideals? Because they need to be convinced that this is necessary for the survival of the planet. Because this is all there is, right? So in order for humanity to survive, we need to achieve these things. We need to make them believe this. Well, the way to do it is through propaganda. Joseph Goebbels was Hitler's propaganda minister and this is what he said. The essence of propaganda consists in winning people over to an idea so sincerely, so vitally, that in the end they succumb to it utterly and can never escape from it. The idea is that the idea by which we win people over is climate change. The idea is that the climate is changing and it's our fault, so we need to do something about it. And obviously through communication, through the internet, mainstream media, this has obviously been made a lot easier than what once would have been impossible. Just notice how in years past the the favourite small talk when you're sitting around, it could be a party, it could be around church or wherever really, and the favourite small talk, talk topic was the weather. Oh, it's pretty hot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a bit humid, that type of stuff. Nowadays it tends to be the climate and the environment and the conversation, as you would know, turns heated very quickly, not just the climate but the conversation as well. And this is, of course, no accident because people have taken positions and the environmental movement has taken over much of the debate. How? By suppressing the critics for those who question it. The language that is used sounds almost religious. You're called a sceptic, you're called a denier. Many Christians, uh, and especially our youth, have been swept into this because this is the world they live in. Recently, one of Sydney's theological colleges ran a counselling course on climate anxiety. So if pastors want to be specialised in climate anxiety, then you go and do this course. This is what it's like out there. There's anxiety. There's worry. This is not accidental. This is all part of uh, the scheme, the plan. Now, we need to understand the motivations here. We need to try and and discuss the motivations. And uh, we need to understand the underlying belief when discussing climate change, when we engage in conversation. So it will help to, uh, to not for the conversation not to get too heated, to just perhaps ask a few questions to, to see what, where are they coming from. The first, group, the first group is obviously more rational and scientific. They believe that AGW or anthropogenic global warming, that is global warming caused by man, man's influence, AGW we'll call it, 
is happening and it is caused by an increase in greenhouse gases, specifically carbon dioxide. They conclude that the increase is caused mainly by us and our lifestyle, particularly, in particularly the lifestyle of the West, in Western civilization. The second group has the mindset of a religious cult. And uh, many within the environmental movement are so obsessed with protecting Mother Earth. You might have seen the protests of these protesters disrupting the streets and closing down called Extinction Rebellion. that they will use any argument, that they will use any, any way to accomplish that goal, no matter how biased, how unbalanced, they will not, they're not open to discussion. So logical discussion is, is impossible. The third group promotes climate change theory for financial gain. Some of the strongest proponents of climate change legislation are actually multinationals who have the greatest financial gain from green technologies. If you travel around Australia, um, you will see windmills everywhere. Those windmills and the solar, big solar panel farms, they're heavily, heavily subsidised. They are owned by multinationals, overseas companies, but they're heavily subsidised by our government and paid for by your electricity bill. So there's obviously an interest, there's obviously an interest in doing this. Now, obviously the opposition, they would say, well, what about the other interest group? What about the multinational oil companies? Don't they have a counter-argument? Well, actually, a lot of the multinational oil companies are actually moving across to the green movement as well. The fourth group, the fourth group, and this is the dangerous one, these are motivated by power. Climate change is a vehicle to take us where we want to go or where they, they want us to go. As it, bring us, as it brings us all the other causes that we have spoken about, all the other causes, it brings it under this one huge umbrella to fulfil the utopian dream. It goes something like this, it will be impossible to take care of our planet, to take care of the future of humanity unless uh, if we have all these different nations with borders and their own governments, we need to centralise everything, which is what we spoke about last week. And the vehicle, therefore, we can even call it a Trojan horse, is climate change. And they understand this. I'm going to join the dots soon, but let's go to the scriptures now. I'm just opening the subject. Let's look at the the Bible. Now, God gave man his charter in Genesis chapter 1. And there are two verses in creation that talk about the, the sanctity of life, sexuality, marriage, procreation, population control, environmentalism and market economics. Two verses, verses Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and verse 28. Verse 
27 talks about the essence of man. The essence of man. Man and woman are purposefully, fearfully, and wonderfully made in the image of God. From this truth flow so many others. When God created, He created everything and then He stopped. And it's like everything in creation slowed down on the sixth day because He was about to make man. He started to make, put the clay together, the dust. And then he breathed life into him. He didn't do that to anything else in creation because we were made in his image. It was a sacred, beautiful moment. From this truth flow all the others. Our duties toward God, our duties towards fellow man, our duties towards creation that he put us in charge of, which brings us to Our second point here, which is the mission of man. First, the essence of man. Secondly, the mission of man in verse 28. This is also called the cultural mandate. To subdue the earth means to to what? To develop it, to bring it under control, but also to study it, to understand it, to get a handle of it, to treat it. And this is the basis for agriculture, for industry, for commerce, for exploration, for the arts, music, literature, education, research, technology, progress and inventions. Also, I need to make a a good point here and I don't know whether you understand this from the, the text you should have remembered from our series in Genesis that we did a few years ago, but creation, the whole earth was not a garden. God created a garden and put man there. The garden had boundaries. Remember all the rivers and everything? So it wasn't like the whole earth was a garden. This is a mistake that we sometimes make, that even before the fall, the, earth, the whole earth was not a garden, but the garden was in in a specific place, in Eden. But in the garden, the the garden would serve as a school, as a university, as a place where man would learn all these things that he would take to the rest of the earth. Here he would learn to tend the garden, which comes from chapter 2, verse 15. And as man multiplied and spread out, they would enhance the earth's fruitfulness, not to the glory of man, but to the glory of God. Sin, of course, caused havoc in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other and with creation. The ground, in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, it tells us that the ground was cursed because of us, because of us. And work became burdensome. It was easy to work the ground, now it was going to be hard. 
And men have exploited each other and have abused the earth. But man's fall did not erase, it did not erase our essence. This is the Imago Dei, the image of God. And it did not erase our mission, the mandate. And what's more is that God's common grace enables even sinful man to multiply and enjoy his blessings. You don't have to be a believer in God in order to enjoy his blessings. It's, for us, it's absolutely non-negotiable. But of course, even Jesus reminded us of this. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he said, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is God's love for humanity, common grace. It's interesting that some 50 years ago um, there were attacks, some attacks happened, started with some literature that was written actually challenging, attacking the Judeo-Christian faith because of, because of God's cultural mandate to subdue the earth. They blame our environmental problems on this. And because of, obviously because of human greed and sinfulness, we can accept some of the criticism. But God's command remains true. And because, because of it, we need to rule the earth responsibly. But we will never be slaves and we will never be worshippers of the earth. Only God deserves our worship. But we need to rule the earth responsibly. Furthermore, I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but you should have, that the Bible is full of climate change. Have you noticed? Noah's flood would be the ultimate, obviously. What about the patriarchal trips to Egypt? They were because of drought, climate change, they call it today. Remember the seven years of fat cows and then the skinny cows? That was caused by climate change. Seven years. Abundance. And poverty, drought, and desperation. But God used Joseph and management skills to what? Says, mate, we've got to manage this. We've got to be good stewards. Let's get this together. And all the nations were blessed because of a man called Joseph who God used so powerfully. And and, uh, it doesn't stop there. It, It goes on. Elijah. What about Elijah? Elijah actually prayed for climate change. He prayed for it. Who would do that? Lord, please stop the rain. That's it. I've had enough of it. He went to the king and he said to him, Know it. There's not going to be any rain now for three and a half, for three years. And then, of course, he had to run away because he wasn't going to be very popular at dinner parties and birthdays anymore. It's because of you, right? 
Elijah. Three years of drought. He prayed and he says in James, James 5.17, he says he prayed earnestly. Who prays earnestly for drought? What is wrong with you? Okay, next week we're going to have a prayer meeting and one of all of us to come together and we're going to pray for drought in Australia. Who's going to come? Who's with me here, guys? Huh? I'm going to lose my church, aren't I? Well, that's what Elijah did. And then, of course, he prayed and the rain came. This is all part, this is all in our word, this is all in our scriptures, guys. It was obviously a very special reason why he prayed that, wasn't it? It was a sin of the nation. As Christians, I don't want you to despair. I don't want you to grow in anxiety. Start panicking about this. I want all of us to go back to the basics of our faith. Trust God, the sovereign Lord. God has given us thermometers and barometers to measure the weather. More importantly, he has given us the gift of prayer to plead before him. These are the tools we can use. But he will never, he will never give us a thermostat to control the climate. That is, no, that's just beyond. So, now we get to the controversial bit, if that wasn't controversial enough. The climate, the, the, as the science tells us. Now, as Christians, we're not against good science, and I need to stress good science. This is, of course, in contrast to Eastern religions which actually deify creation rather than study it. Uh, they use it, creation as a source of mystical insight. Many notable scientists like Newton and Kepler and Galileo were Christians. And they regarded creation as a book to be read, as a book to be studied. Science is actually one of the important tools in fulfilling the dominion mandate over the earth. Our God is a rational God. He has set the earth with laws that govern it. We can measure gravity. We can measure so many other things because God is a rational God. What we all want to avoid is bad science where you first arrive at the conclusion and then go and do the research to justify it. That's bad science. Which is not really, that, that, that is an insult to some of you who are into science. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And you know in your heart of hearts that this is not the way that you were taught at uni. And yet this is exactly what is happening today. I notice discussion with regards to climate change theory always brings in the science tends to go there very, very quickly, whether you're discussing or arguing with somebody online or face-to-face. 
They tend to go, that's the go-to subject, the science. But the science says this, the science says that. However, when it comes to gender theory, one is climate theory, the other one is gender theory, they run away from the science because gender theory is not rational at all. It's not scientific. The, the X and Y chromosomes, they, it's there. I mean, what are you going to do? But, I, but know that those who push the theories of climate change and those who push for gender fluidity are all drinking from the same fountain. What I say is that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Let's be consistent here. Now many Christians, what worries me is that many Christians have been swept into this assuming that the science is settled. It is a theory, it is not settled. Now that, even that statement is a bit controversial, I know. But yet our climate is so incredibly complex. Yet the mantra that we continue to hear is simple, it is continuous, it is, it is, it is relentless, this mantra that it's climate change, it's climate change, it's climate change. Again, reading from Goebbels' textbook. This is what he said. The rank and file are usually much more primitive than we imagine. Thank you, Joseph. Propaganda must therefore always be essentially simple and repetitious. The good thing about the internet is that everyone has a voice. The bad thing about the internet is that everyone has a voice. Have you found that out? And mainstream media is, is, is I would say, 90-95% all about anthropogenic global warming. I want to hear the other side. Give the other side a bit of a listen. Come on, guys. What are you afraid of? And yet our national broadcaster, most of the, the newspapers and everything, just pushing one line constantly. What happened to the old debate between one or the other? And this goes beyond conservatives and, and, and uh, lefties and everything else because it swept everything. Because why? Because the age of information is also very prone to the age of misinformation. And that is where propaganda comes in. I, I challenge the challenge to all of us is to be wise and to use the brain that God has given us. To use the brain. Now, I, 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 I need to be obviously. I don't want to denigrate anybody's views, but um, even one of a group an organisation, Christian organisation, Creation Ministries, which I respect very, very highly. They don't even have a statement on climate change because obviously they are so divided in their views there and so they said we can't have an official view, which is interesting in itself, isn't it? Let's move on. They say that the main culprit is carbon dioxide. Now, carbon dioxide... I'm going to give you a few percentages here just to give you an idea of the volume and the, 
how that works. Now, the atmosphere, how, how high is this atmosphere, that this wonderful canopy that we live in that God has, has given us? The atmosphere that we breathe, where we hear sound. Oh, that, that's God's, that we are protected from all the other different stuff that bombards us. Otherwise, we, otherwise the surface of the earth will look like the moon, you know, with pimples everywhere. So God has actually given us something wonderful in the atmosphere. It actually goes for about 300 miles or about 450 kilometres. It's a very long, long way that the atmosphere stretches. But the main concentration um, of, of where everything happens is probably in the first, I don't know, 15 to 20 miles at, at that maximum. That's where all the action tends to happen. All the gases and everything are concentrated. And the main culprit within this, they say, is carbon dioxide, which makes up 0.04% of the Earth's atmosphere. Humans, humans, that's us, cause 3% of the CO2 emissions. Of that 3%, China, USA and India, they produce over 50% of global emissions, those three countries. While Australia produces just over 1%. More, regarded, just, just to get an idea of the perspective here, the earth is 70% water, 30% land, and humans live on 3%. Just human populations occupy about 3% of the earth's surface. More perspective. There are about 1,500 potentially active volcanoes around the world. In 1991, Mount Pinatubo, one volcano erupted in the Philippines and the world temperatures dropped about 1%, uh, 1 degree for a whole year. One volcano. You probably remember it. There are over a million volcanoes that calculate that there are over a million volcanoes under the sea in the oceans. Over a million. About 75,000 of these, 75,000 of these rise more than a kilometre above the ocean floor. These are big ones. Remember just 1,500 on the surface? 75,000 big ones under the ocean. Now, if one volcano can produce a one degree temperature drop, just imagine if God suddenly takes his hand of mercy and lets everything go. Now, I think one day it will happen. But don't you think that that's God's prerogative, that he can do that? Yeah, there isn't a cork big enough to block the volcanoes, by the way. There's nothing we can do. God's creation. The way that he has made the world. There was a medieval warm period between 900 and 1300 AD. So between 900 and 1300. This is called the medieval warm period. And if it, temperatures were actually 
warmer than what they are now. How do we know this? We know this because the Vikings, they did extensive farming in Greenland, in Iceland. They were all green. That's why it was called Greenland. It wasn't just somebody was taking a mickey out of the snow. It was actually green. From there, we had a little ice age. From 1300 to about 1850, there was the little ice age. And uh, since 1850, which sort of coincided with the industrial age, uh, and remember, from 900 to 1850, there was no AGW previous to industrial age. We, we cannot really blame everything, anything on, on humans, really. There was no influence of humans. And yet, since the industrial era, suddenly we're the fault for everything. Really? Has anybody studied the sun? Do you think that the sun might have something to do with it? Yes, they are doing some studies and they need to do more of it. But somebody said that it's hard to believe, but very little research has been funded, has been funded, because to do research you need money and grants and all that. Very little research has been funded to search for natural causes of warming. Why? Because there's no money in it. Nobody's, you know, what are we going to do? There's nothing we can do if it's all natural causes. Somehow we have to pin it to some cause in order to get us where we want to be. It has simply been assumed that global warming is man-made. Attitude is, we don't want to know whatever else is causing. And, this, and that's bad science. I think definitely need to do a lot more of that. It gets worse. Professor Mike Halm was considered the most influential climate alarmist scientist and leading contributor of, the, of this department within the United Nations called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. This was a very select group of scientists who were, who were gathered by invitation only. So everybody who thought the same were put into this, into this group. And he was, I suppose, the most eminent contributor. We, we should really call him a post-normal scientist who, he was one of these guys who went through the motions of science and arrived at the conclusions uh, way before uh, did any studies, so there was already a predetermined agenda in order to arrive at the conclusion. This was also the place when he was there of the uh, Anglia, East Anglia, where the whole um, I don't know if you remember about the hockey sticks, uh, when they were going to fiddle with the, the figures, with the temperatures and all this. This happened about 10 years ago, called Climate Gate. Nobody talks about that much these days. Now, unlike other climate scientists, however, Mike is at least honest about the agenda of climate change. He is at least honest, and we're going to give him credit for that. This is what he said. I'm going to quote, the function of climate change really is not about stopping climate chaos. Instead, we need to think how we can use the idea of climate change to rethink how we take forward our political, social 
economic and personal projects over the decades to come. You, you see where this is going. He goes on. And he's open about this. The idea of climate change should be seen as an intellectual resource around which our collective and personal identities and projects can form and take shape. We need to ask not what we can do for climate change, but what climate change can do for us. Bells should be ringing, guys. And, he says, because the idea of climate change is so plastic, it can be deployed across many of our human projects and can serve many of our psychological, ethical and spiritual needs. End of quote. How does that sound? Now, most climate scientists, like I said before, rely on grants. And uh, before you receive a grant, you need to stipulate what is your project going to be about. And so already at the point of, say, I'm going to try and study the natural causes, for example, of climate change, well, you're not going to get a grant, are you? However, if you're going to push the same agenda that everybody else sees, the consensus, so-called consensus, then there is already a vested interest in what conclusion you're going to arrive at. There is a vested interest in perpetuating, in making the problem bigger, in building up the anxiety so you can get the headlines. Bad science usually happens when research is tied to agenda-driven grants. If you want an example of this, uh, Professor Ridd was sacked from James Cook University for challenging their research on the Great Barrier Reef. You can read about it. He was, the court found that he was obviously not at fault. He was actually trying to get to the truth and he got the sack. Which leads to the next point. Politics. Politics has to do with power and control. And this is the part of the utopian dream. So, Paul, why are you telling us all this? Well, it's actually part of my duty. I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to be... Uh, to, to just be like a, leading a cult here so you can all follow what I'm saying. Uh, this, is, this is part of my mandate as a pastor from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 to 12. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. What do you think that means? Call them out. Call them out. It is shameful, then he said, even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. In 2008, a newly elected Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, declared climate change to be the greatest moral, economic and social challenge of our time. Suddenly, a theory about climate turned into a political ideology. The push came from the UN, which over the years, the UN has obviously become very, very powerful. And within it, 
Here I'm going to join another, another dot for you. Within it, the man who managed to get the climate industry to where it is today was the late Canadian tycoon Morris Strong. Now, even though he was a tycoon, he was a self-confessed socialist. He made his money from oil um, and other industries, but Strong immersed himself within the United Nations and was the driving force behind the idea that the United Nations needs to be this world governance. All the different governments and nations of the world need to submit to this global body. How are they going to fund it? How are they going to pull it off? So to fund the UN, he proposed a world tax on all monetary transactions of half a percent, which would have given the UN at the time an annual income of $1.5 trillion. You can do a lot with that. Now that failed for obvious reasons. Then came, then he came up with a brilliant idea to use global warming as the vehicle to fund the utopian dream. All he needed to do was to convince others, government leaders, and it was off. In 1989, Strong was appointed Secretary General of the Earth Summit. And in 1992, in the Earth Summit in Rio, um, Brazil, this is what he said. He said, It is clear that current lifestyles and consumption patterns of the affluent middle class involving high meat intake, ding, 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 meat, consumptions of large amounts of frozen and convenience foods, use of fossil fuels, appliances, home and workplace air conditioning and suburban housing are not sustainable. A few years later, Strong got together with Mikhail Gorbachev, you remember him, and they put together the Earth Charter, which expresses a global partnership to care for the earth. Remember man's charter, God's charter that he gave to man? Now we're going to come up with our own earth charter. Now the original earth charter is inside what is called the Ark of Hope, which travels the world. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. Here it is, the Ark of Hope. Next pick. Doesn't show? No? Oh, what a shame. Okay. The Ark of Hope is actually built to look like the Ark of the Covenant. It's got handles. And uh, inside this Ark of Hope is the Earth Charter. Wherever they have their conferences, whenever they have their, you know, 20,000 delegates that meet together all over the world, the Earth Charter is carried. And the picture I was, showing, I was going to show was that wherever it is placed, this, this, this very bad copy of the Ark of the Covenant, obviously, people actually bring offerings. They, they pray in front of it. And you're telling me that this is simply a scientific thing? No, this is deeply spiritual. It has moved beyond the rational, guys. This is, this is a religious, spiritual movement. And there are other books. No, not, not the Bible. Definitely not the Bible. We don't put the Bible in there. But the Temenos documents and others, which are all about different cultic, 
spirituality from the east. Now, Satan always tries to make cheap copies of the things that God has given us, hasn't he? Now, in 2005, uh, Morris was caught with his hand in the till. He resigned, fled to China, and he died about five years ago. Even though he's gone, his ideas remained. And they are reflected in the Paris Agreement, which uh, countries have committed themselves to. Uh, and they have committed themselves to the temperatures in our world will not rise more than 1.5% to 2%. Think about that. Suddenly we hold the thermostat. We're going to limit the temperature in our world. Don't worry about volcanoes, don't worry about the sun, don't worry about everything else. We will limit. As a developed nation and signatory, Australia is committed to implementing it. That's part of it. As a developing nation, we are a developed nation. China is a developing nation. China doesn't have to comply to the Paris Agreement for another 10 years. So while we are... Have you noticed how we used to make a lot of widgets because electricity was cheap? Now a lot of our widget factories have gone over to another country. They buy our coal because we can't use our coal, but they can use it. They can actually build, China's planning to build another 150 coal-powered stations. Last time I checked, we're still part of the same planet. So whether you burn the coal here or you burn it over there, it's still the same. And they don't have to comply until 2030. So they can do as much as they want till then. During the last, during the bushfires, the alarmists were very quick, you would have noticed, to connect it all to the climate change. That was the mantra. That's the way it's supposed to work. Even though the excessive fuel, the, all the restrictions that were placed on those who were trying to care for the bush, manage it, which is our mandate. No, we can't do that. And even though there were numerous arsonists who were charged, still the mantra was climate change. And they needed someone to vent their anger against. And it was obviously our PM who was on holidays, who is a Christian, who has said, uh, let's not go overboard here, let's have a think about it. And he hasn't pulled out of the Paris Agreement, by the way. But again, from Goebbels' textbook, I keep quoting Goebbels, I like him. He said, propaganda must facilitate the displacement of aggression by specifying the targets for hatred. Why do you think the Prime Minister was attacked? We need to specify the targets for hatred. In Goebbels' time, who were the targets? The Jews, the blacks. Now, lastly, the economic, well, second lastly, the economic and social points. 
Reading the press, they would have you believe that the situation in our world is getting worse. The negativity, the negativity is deliberate. It is purposeful. In order to bring in radical changes that affect our lives, you need to tell them, you need to convince them that things are bad and they're getting worse. One area is sustainable population. They tell you that the population of the world is just really, really high. Over 7 billion people, this is unsustainable. Now, let me join some dots for you again. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of the Species. That's the way that we sort of remember his, his masterpiece. However, the full title of his book is revealing. This is what it is. Okay, I'll put it up there. This is what the title is. On the Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservations of the Favoured Races in Struggle for Life. Guess what that's about? In 1883, Francis Galton, building on Darwin's work, launched the eugenics movement as a means to weed out the, the sick and others and, and to weed out the lower races, the lower races in order to promote the higher ones through population control. In the early 1900s, Margaret Sanger popularised the term in the US, birth control, and founded Planned Parenthood. You know what that's about. She advocated for contraception and abortion to limit population growth of the racially unfit Today, this is how Planned Parenthood started. Today, this is no accident, guys, Planned Parenthood. This is today in the US, abortion rate amongst black women in the US, abortion rate amongst black women in the US is three times higher than the rest. What do you think that's about? They keep talking about social justice. Look at it right there. That is a justice issue. How is that even possible in a civilised society? Three hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, the average yield per grain of wheat sown in the ground was four grains, four grains. But today, it is eight hundred. That is a remarkable yield. Uh, such yields means we need less land to farm. Farmers are able to make food more abundant, more nourishing, more affordable for everyone, especially the poor. Less hunger, less starvation. 200 years ago, this is only 200 years ago, almost half of all children died before the first birthday. Almost half of all children died before the first birthday. And life expectancy was under 30 years of age. All of you, all of you above 30, you're old, okay? Basically. 
Wood and dry dung was used for cooking and heating, which even today accounts for a million deaths in developing countries. A million people die from the old form of cooking and heating. Also leads to deforestation because they need wood for heating. Despite all this, despite all this, life expectancy is now 80 in developed countries and it's reaching 65 in developing countries. Nowhere, nowhere is it below 40. And abject poverty continues to fall. It used to be 50% in uh, 1990, 30 years ago, it used to be 50%, people living in poverty. Now it is under 20%. Are things getting worse or are they getting better? These are actual figures. I've, I've travelled to many places in the third world. This is, you know, and I can, Ted's been going to Myanmar for the last 20 years. He can tell you the progress in the last 20 years from what it used to be to what it is now. Fossil fuels such as coal, gas, petrol have enabled a lot of progress through transportation, making it easier, more affordable. You, you go to Myanmar, you go to Cambodia, you go to Paraguay, everybody's riding on a motorbike. And I mean everybody, the whole family, four or five kids, mum and dad, on one motorbike. Right? I don't know about safer, but that's how they're getting along. Before they had to walk. Also, coal-fired electricity has powered much of our civilization since the 1800s. We need it for street lighting, we need it for refrigeration, for food storage, for computers, for industrial machinery, we need it for cooking. Yet this environmental movement would like us to abandon industrial civilization go back to living in harmony with nature like our ancestors. You know for whom this wasn't a choice, this actual philosophy for whom it wasn't a choice? Soviet and Soviet can tell you. Pol Pot in Cambodia, 1975. Drove everybody out from the cities. Millions of people driven away from the cities to go and live in the bush in the country. They ploughed the roads, they got rid of the teachers, the scientists, everybody who had a bit of knowledge, they, they killed them. And there you have the killing fields. Why? Because they were re-engineering, re-engineering based on French philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre and others. Actually, it wasn't an experiment. You want to know how real it is, have a talk to Savannah and Savie, what it was like. People, we, we, we need to know where this is coming from. Where is the fountain? Where is all this stuff coming from? It's the same source. Satanic. Have nothing to do with them, Paul said. What is our response, finally? As God's children, we are definitely to take care of the garden. But please understand that 
taking care of the garden is not the gospel. Today I hear that social justice, environmentalism, all of that is the gospel. It is not the gospel. By now you should know what the gospel is. All this stuff is law. And the Bible says that law cannot give life. The gospel gives life. The law cannot. Galatians 3.21 And there is a growing evangelical movement which seeks to obscure the distinction between the law and the gospel. I've read, I've heard that Christians need to recycle, they need to use fluorescent light bulbs, eat organic, use public transport, don't travel by plane, eat less meat, have less children. All this sounds a little bit too legalistic to me. This is what Paul told the Colossians. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of where? Of this world. What, what do you think is attacking all of this stuff? These are the spiritual, elemental spiritual forces of the world. This is, this is what is attacking us. We've, we've, we, we died with Christ to that. So why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Christ came to give us life. And he said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The thief comes to take away your peace. The the thief comes to take away your peace and give you anxiety. To give our kids, our children anxiety. To give you worry. To take away the full life that God has promised you. The thief comes to do that. But what does Christ do? He says, I have come that they may have life. Life and have it to the the full, to the brim. A full life. Isn't that what we all want? But not just for us, so that we can bless others as well. Don't let the world fill us with anxiety and kill our joy. Let us be grateful to God who has given us life, a life to live and a life to share, to be a blessing and to do his will in this world. May God bless us. Amen.